The following interview is an episode of PTO Extra. If you'd like to get regular access to other bonus content, including listeners' questions episodes where you can put your points to recent guests, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Welcome to another episode of PTO Extra. Something a little bit different today and a vanishingly rare instance of the show delivering on the other bit of the name. So back around 2010, I became somewhat obsessed with Japanese pop music and ambient music of the 1980s, in particular the Yellow Magic Orchestra and the solo records of the members of that group, Ryuichi Sakamoto, Haruomi Hosono and Yukihiro Takahashi, as well as albums by Akiko Yano, Yasuaki Shimizu, and Hiroshi Yoshimura, amongst many others. And last year I discovered that this was an enthusiasm shared with the architectural historian and very occasional pop music writer Owen Hatherley, who has since written an article partially on the topic, which you can find a link to in the description of today's episode. Although much of the conversation is on the music itself, we do touch on the politics, uh, particularly how these artists were influenced by and reacting to the culture of the 1960s new left, during the extraordinary economic boom of the 1980s, and about how some of these musicians reintegrated the memory of 20th century Japanese imperialism in Asia into their music. If you find yourself wanting to explore some of the music we discuss in the episode, you can find an accompanying playlist on Spotify. It's titled Unnatural City, after the track by Kenji Kawai that appears on the soundtrack of the anime film Patlabor 2, Uh, which I'd also very much recommend if you haven't seen it. It's one of those instances where you don't need to have seen the first film and the sequel is actually far superior to the original. You can also find a link to the playlist in the description of today's episode and as the pinned tweet on the PTO Twitter page. As well as tracks from the 80s, the playlist also includes some records from other genres we discussed in the episode, including the folk rock era of the 1970s, as well as from the vaporwave and future funk genres, which were very much influenced by much of the 1980s work that Owen and I discuss. Unfortunately, there are plenty of fantastic records from this era that aren't currently available on the streaming services, including Akiko Yano's best work, especially the album Tadaima, Paradise of Replica by After Dinner, Ichiko Hashimoto's Beauty album, Miho Fujiwara's Heartbeat, Untotoku by Chiemi Manabe, and the soundtracks to the animated films Akira and The Wings of Honomies, amongst others. Do check those out too if you can. Many of them are available on YouTube or to purchase from Bandcamp and other such outlets. So we've been planning to do this episode for quite some time now, but various things including illness, uh, we've both had fresh bouts of COVID in the last few months, work commitments uh, and also your recent trip to Japan meant that we've had to repeatedly reschedule and yesterday I I went and checked my email to work out just when we first discussed doing something on Japanese music from the 1980s and it seems that back in April of of last year after we met up for a coffee you'd sent me an article that you were working on for N plus one magazine at the time on the topic Um, and we talked a bit about the music when we met you know it's something of a mutual enthusiasm And subsequently, you reworked that article into a piece that appeared on the website of the Jenks Foundation. 
with this particular focus on the late Ryuichi Sakamoto's Riot in Lagos, a track from his 1980 album B2 Unit. Sakamoto, of course, a member of the Yellow Magic Orchestra and and who sadly passed away in in March of this year, which was another occasion when we were talking about doing the episode, but something else intervened and and we couldn't do it. In that first version of the article, you describe how you spent much of the lockdown, quote, looking at pictures of buildings, watching films from, and most of all, playing the music of Japan in the 1980s. Judging by the number of hits on certain YouTube videos, I'm very far from alone in this. In the hot, slow, empty spring and summer of 2020, listening to this on the balcony of the flat I rent in southeast London was a strange experience of intermingled bliss and dread, a perfect soundtrack to Limbo. If my memory's right, I started listening to this music a little bit earlier, I, th- I think around about 2010. And back then I can remember like ripping tracks from YouTube to MP3 because so much of this music was, was very hard to find at the time. Fortunately, lots of it has since been reissued and can be found on streaming services and and vinyl. But I also remember finding myself returning to some of that music again during the lockdown. I think in my case, it was perhaps more on the sort of apocalyptic dread side of things, (laughs) uh, you know, rather than the the more blissful, especially Yellow Magic Orchestra's 1981 album Technodelic, perhaps their darkest record and and one I know you're also a fan of. and as I say, it, it, was, it was some of the more sort of dystopian elements of that music that I was drawn to during the lockdown, you know, for rather obvious reasons. Um, but as you describe, you were also listening to a lot of the much more upbeat and, and sometimes downright whimsical material produced by some of those Japanese artists in the, in the 80s. Um, can you talk about what you think drew you to this music during that time and, and why you found it such a good soundtrack to that experience? I mean, being in early middle age, I'm, you know, several years behind every every curve. So um, I probably did sort of just happen to find this stuff about kind of five years after, after a lot of other people had. And some of the things that you mentioned have been have been things that I had been into for for a very long time. Just the sort of things that you find, you know, kind of millings, you know, kind of going through the second hand bins in the two thousands. So, you know, my copy of B two Unit by Ryuichi Sakamoto, you know, was bought for about a fiver in the Music and Video Exchange, and you know, my mm. um, you could always buy the soundtrack to Merry Christmas, Mister Lawrence, in charity shops. Yes. Um, yeah. So that stuff, the stuff that didn't need kind of rediscovery because it was always around, I kind of knew about. But then there was this, just realizing that it was this absolute kind of tip of an iceberg. Um, so the kind of proximate cause was just like spending loads more time watching YouTube, um, which obviously happened because of the, um, the lockdown. Um, before that, I didn't have a streaming TV and then I think many people bought bought you know bought TVs and boxes that could stream stuff at that point that they that, you know who hadn't previously had them, and you know sort of a few kind of searches for things that you were already listening to would lead you to this, and it'd be like oh what is this I've never come across this before you know there'd be a kind of um, you know the algorithm was working quite well in that regard. Mm, but the other yeah. thing is that there just uh, just ha- loads of that stuff just happened to have just been reissued. I mean, the stuff that Light in the Attic were putting out, the the big ambient um, double CD compilation that I think had come out in 2019, um, the Pacific Breeze compilations, that those those kind of those two in particular, 
um, just kind of you know opened a, a, a motherload, and of course the, you know people have been actually doing this for years and kind of basing entire sort of internet-based subgenres on this for like about you know five or six years by that point. But um, but yeah, but I think that that's how I got to it. But the thing of like why that was so appealing, I think a lot of it. And this doesn't apply with something like, you know, the kind of dark, darker YMO records or something like B2 Unit, but it to- totally applies with the ambient stuff that was being reissued or with the city pop records that were being rediscovered, is that they sound like people that are pretty happy with the world. And that's a very, very difficult thing to imagine um, <laughs> and a very, very difficult thing to kind of recapture. And so in that kind of moment where everything seemed to stop, you know, this music that was sort of based very much on sort of stillness, which is very much the case for, for a lot of the ambient records that have been rediscovered. Um, but also kind of, you know, this sort of um, idyllic kind of Pacific soft pop that was all being kind of, you know, was all filling YouTube playlists was very seductive. You know, the last thing I wanted to do at that moment was put on a fucking Joy Division record. Um, you know, you, you didn't didn't want to think about the bad things, um, and it was a very, you know, it was a very easily available way to think out of it. On the question of genre, so you've mentioned their city pop, and in, in the article you also touch on the folk rock bands of the nineteen seventies, such as uh, Happy End. But you write that the genre you're mainly talking about, and it, it's also the one I'm most interested in as well, doesn't actually seem to have a name at all. Yeah. I mean, it's um, you know it's sometimes described as as techno pop. It has a lot in common with what's nowadays called avant pop. Mm. But what for you are the the distinguishing features of the genre, and and who are the artists who worked in that area that you're most most drawn to? Yeah, so this is a genre which I think. Um, the sort of nameless genre, I think, was sort of brought to a lot of people outside Japan's attention by an online mix that was doing the rounds about seven or eight years ago called Fairlights, Mallets and Bamboo, put together by Spencer Duran, who I think later an American um, musical, even musician, musical hipster, um, who has been involved in a lot of these reissues. And within that, you know, kind of, not the first couple of YMO albums, but the later Yellow Magic Orchestra records. So um, background music, um, Technodelic, Naughty Boys. That the, the you know that those ones, the Sakamoto solo records of the early eighties, the Hasono solo records of the early eighties, and you know other kind of like YMO linked people like um, Hideki Matsutake or Akiko Yano. There were loads of like pop stars, so called idol singers, who the YMO people were producing at that point who also kind of fit within that it's kind of amazing if you start looking at the the names on sleeve notes just how uh ubiquitous the influence of ymo was yeah. and just how how they're all over so many other other musicians work of that time and how busy they were i mean just the, the sheer amount of you know like i mean that's one of the other things of it like you know like any kind of record collecting nerd i mean i've never i've never been a like you know i want a rare pressing of so and so but i've always I've always accumulated records. And um, there's just so much, you know, just finding like pop singles that Sakamoto or Hosono or Takahashi produced, there's dozens. Um, and they're all brilliant. Um, but there was other people like um, uh, Yusuaki Shimizu, I'm, I'm, I imagine I'm pronouncing everything quite badly, who had a group called Mariah, 
and that that was another kind of obvious YouTube sensation is um, the third Mariah album, which is really extraordinary. And then kind of people like um, Hiroshi Sato, um, Miharu Koshi, who had worked a lot with Hosono, the group who had been a prog group originally called Gaino Yamashiragumi, who did the soundtrack to Akira. Um, it's Midori Takada, um, who had the script called Mokwaji Ensemble. And these records all have this thing of like, you know, on the one hand, they are quite kind of techno pop. You know, you you can compare them to some of the people that they were working with at the time. You know, like um, Sakamoto was working with Robin Scott, who did you know who did pop music as M. Uh, was also working with Dennis Boval. You know that they that they kind of had an eye on that kind of like strange sort of studio synth pop world. Like, there's quite a lot of Trevor Horn and a lot of that stuff, but like the kind of Trevor Horn of like the Dollar singles or something. Uh, or the art of noise, rather than the kind of lush orchestral stuff. Um, but there's also this thing which obviously kind of pulls in, um, you know, pulls in the gaijin, which is the fact that it has this very, very much for want of a better word, oriental sound, or sort of orientalist approach. And that's one of the things that's really, really fun about a lot of this music is that it sort of fits in this kind of world music parody genre. Like none of it actually, when you, you kind of dig into what they're actually ripping off, hardly any of it's traditional Japanese music. You know, they're ripping off Javanese music, like gamelan. They're, they're ripping off a lot of African music. There's a lot of use of like marimbas and a lot of, you know, a, a, a lot of sort of Southern and, and, and West African instruments. Um, also the first YMO single, Firecracker, is, is a cover of this... Um... 1959 Martin Denny track, which is almost comic exotica. Right, right, exactly. And so you, you know, they have all these kind of exotic, exotica instruments, influences, which, you know, the kind of mallets part of the of that of that title of the Fairlights, mallets, and bamboo, and you know, these kind of very kind of percussion as melody sounds, which, which those of us, you know, who are in in, in their early forties will all know well from the soundtrack to Akira. Like, you know, one of the things that when you first kind of hear like a Mokwaju Ensemble record or something like that is like, oh, right, this is where the soundtrack to Akira comes from. You know, when when you hear that when you're, you know, when you're 14 in the early 90s, it sounds like nothing else on earth. And you assume that it's this really Japanese music. And then later on, listening to a lot of um, Indonesian music, you, uh, you realize that it's not Japanese at all. And so you can kind of, you know, that it's this kind of auto-orientalization that's just freighted through layers and layers and layers of irony, um, which you can kind of connect to, like it's kind of fusion of that stuff and, and techno-pop obviously lends itself to seeing it all via the, the Japanese bubble of the 80s. So via the period in which, you know, for the first time since the 18th century, the most kind of technologically advanced and in many ways culturally interesting um, country in the world um, was in Asia. You know, this kind of economic superpower of that uh, uh, of that decade was, 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 was absolutely Japan. And there were various predictions, which weren't entirely borne out, that it would surpass the USA as the most powerful econ- economy in the world, which it didn't. It still has standard of living that's vastly higher than most of the USA. Um, but it doesn't, you know, that, that, that surpassal never happened. But a lot of that music does have this kind of like, you know, the, the future is happening and it's happening here. 
in you know very very far away from from New York or London or Berlin or Paris but also you can connect it to something which the YMO members who had a background in the in the in the new left very much kind of make a theme of their music which is the legacy of Japanese imperialism so there's this real kind of like on the one hand it's a very kind of exciting sound but there's so much kind of going on historically and politically that you just end up going down a lot of wormholes to work out what's going on well, maybe come back to that point about the, the the politics of this music to you know to the extent that it has one mm-hmm. i mean obviously it's not sort of directly political music but but just on the, the sort of sound world of this stuff so you mentioned that some of those reissues have been ambient records and towards the end of his career uh, sakamoto started working more more in that area and i'm personally i'm not sure how much i always love that that stuff that he did the latest sort of ambient ambient work oh, really um, like so it's the kind of it's the 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 90s bill laswell years when bill laswell has this reverse midas touch and you know a load of ter- fairly I mean, some of them are fun, but they're pretty bad records happen in the late eighties and nineties. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm one of the few people who has a bit more time for that stuff. But I've got I've got a you know particularly sweet tooth musically. So Yeah, I mean as as, uh, as soon as I see like Bill Laswell credits I mean I'm you know, I don't imagine Bill Laswell as a PTO <laughs> listener, so but hopefully not. But you know, as soon as you see him on something like, Oh wow, it's a record by like Iggy Pop or Pill or Sakamoto or someone, wow, I'm gonna take this home and then you're like Oh no! You know it sounds like Mister <laughs> Mister, and that's always him. Sure, um, fair enough. I think I think maybe part of the difference here is that one of us likes Steely Dan and one of us doesn't. <laughs> yes, so, this uh, is the crucial point. Uh, listeners can work out who that might be. Um, but what I was going I was going to say about uh, about ambient is that even on sort of those early Sakamoto records or the YMO records, where the music is you know relatively frenetic, it's you know it's, it's pretty lively stuff. It, it seems to me there's often sort of elements of it or introductory moments where you could take something from that and it's and it would you know it seems like it would work so well in a sort of ambient setting. Mm, mm. Which feels to me that's less the case than, say, you know, a lot of synth pop in in Britain around this, you know, a similar sort of time yeah. or, or slightly later. Yeah. I, I don't know if you'd agree with that. I think that's true. Um, there's a couple of exceptions. I mean, one of those exceptions is obviously the group themselves, Japan, who are, yes, who are yes, a really interesting kind of side yeah. story in all of this because they're pretty much the only British group that really noticed this stuff at the time and really bring it into their sound. Like a lot of stuff that isn't some, something like the album Tindrum that they were credited for being incredibly innovative for doing was just them catching up with Sakamoto a lot of the time, you know, and, and, and that kind of, but there's often these kind of very floaty ambient moments and particularly on their B-sides from, from Japan at that point. So I think they were kind of, yeah, they, they were almost like an honorary Japanese group. I mean, they had the guy from the group Ipudo as their touring guitarist for a while, and then they did an album with him. Is that Masami Tsuchiya? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did an album with him called Rice Music, which um, just sounds much more like Tin Drum than anything any of the rest of Japan did afterwards. Um, so there's a kind of non- nominative determinism there, there, I think. You know, they kind of... Um, they looked like a group that had been that were in girls' manga, so they were obviously huge in Japan itself. Although I think I don't think that you know their choice of name I think was fairly random. And then they encounter all of this music, which they then incorporate. But the thing that I find really interesting about the ambient stuff, as an architectural historian, is it's it really takes the kind of idea of environmental music that someone like Eno only really talked about and just does it. 
like there's um a Hisono, Harumi Hisono ambient album called Watering a Flower from about 1984, which was composed to be played in the first kind of big Muji department store in Tokyo. Um, and there's an album, which is one of my favorites of the kind of recent reissues by uh, Yoshio Ojima called Music for Spiral, which is a soundtrack to be played in a Fumihiko Maki building of the early 80s and maki was one of that sort of generation of japanese architects who did very kind of utopian dramatic kind of megastructural things most of which didn't get built in the 60s and then kind of moves towards this much more kind of sober corporate style but which still incorporates a lot of the kind of weirdness of his of his 60s work and this building spiral was an art center sponsored by a lingerie manufacturer um which is, I mean, I, I and I've, I've been there. I went there in the spring when I went, when, when my partner and I went to Tokyo, and um, it's um, it's got an overpriced cafe. It's got a few galleries. It's got a shop where you can, you know, buy some very expensive um, ceramic ware, and it's got a roof garden. And it's not really, you know, and, and there's quite a few of these, like of the kind of bubble era of these buildings that just seem to have been set up by corporations as these kind of art spaces or sort of semi-art, semi-shopping spaces, which, again, kind of fits very well with this music that's very, very, very commercial and also extremely experimental. And it's this kind of soundtrack that, you know, different bits of it play in different bits of this of, of this space. And I, I, you know, I practically fainted when I went there in, in, in May and they was, they still play it. So <laughs> I was like, oh, that's my God, I, you know, I really have, like... You know, Landed in the better world I have always dreamt of. Um, I mean, there was a lot of that in Tokyo in general, but um, but yeah, that that that, that, that still there. But that that thing of like that incredibly close link to environments and to to big capital and to you know and and to retail companies and to manufacturing companies and so forth is really um, really intrinsic to it. You know, it's it's literally music. You know, it, it's it's there to you know kind of create this placid environment in this very chaotic city so that you can go and you know buy a notebook or a teapot yeah it's interesting i mean i i read recently an interview with akiko yano and she um she mentions recording and writing a lot of music for commercials and she sort of asked if if she felt constrained by the parameters of of making music for that kind of setting and she was like no not at all it was actually a very creative situation which on the left that's you know perhaps a slightly surprising thing to to hear it shouldn't be i mean it shouldn't be i mean mm. you know things like raymond scott in the 50s and 60s you know um, incredibly kind of experimental sounds being produced for you know tupperware adverts um and the the kind of you know the 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 kind of pop modernism that we all you know that lots of us i imagine lots of pto listeners um all love you know things like as expressed through things like the radiophonic workshop it's not that distant from that you know that is the kind of like the nice kind of taxpayer funded educational version of a pretty similar thing which is basically kind of program music you know it's it's um you know, you go in and you clock on and you work from nine to five and you, you know, you're told, right, you know, we need a jingle for pants or you're told, like, you know, we need, like, major blood knock stomach or whatever and, and you do it. Um, and, you know, that the, the idea that you can't find sort of artistic expression in that is obviously 
untrue, but it's a particular kind of artistic expression. You know, no one's asked Merzbau to do this. One of the things that's kind of interesting about the sort of rediscovery of the stuff in the West is that Japanese music has never gone away, but it's just never been this stuff. Like the stuff that, you know, people that, you know, if you subscribe to The Wire, you know, at any point in the last 25 years, you know, the boredoms or Keiji Haino or, 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 you know, High Rise or Mersbo or, you know, all of these people are, 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 are huge. And there's actually some connections with some of these people. Like they're not totally separate scenes. But that kind of like white out noise stuff, the stuff that Julian Cope writes about in, in Chapter Rock Sampler, is, you know, which is a great fun book in lots of ways. And I like some of that music. Um, but it's totally, totally, totally different to this. Like that's, you know, that is proper kind of like music that, um, you know, no, no slur on Ben Watson here, but, but Ben Watson might like, you know, it's, it's aggressive, dissonant kind of, um, you know, anti-corporate, you know, you couldn't put on like Leverley's the nudes on like an advert for pants, but you could put YMO on an advert for pants. So there's these kind of parallel tracks, I think, happening in the 70s and 80s. But the stuff that we got was always the avant-garde, you know, as, a, as if we'd got this pit, as if you had a picture of like American pop music of the 60s and 70s and 80s that just consisted of the Velvet Underground television and no wave or something. Um, which is really weird that that happened, actually. It's really, really weird. Do you think part of the reason there was more of an appetite for that sort of drone rock scene that you described, mm. do you think that was, you know, if we, you know, thinking about, you know, the early 2000s, the 90s, it's very much a time when there's a lot of emphasis on musical authenticity and hostility to the kind of, <laughs> you know, the sheen and the surfaces of 1980s pop music, regardless yeah, of, of mean, who's making that and regardless of their politics. I think in the 90s, perhaps, but I mean, in the, you know, in the 2000s, the only time I've ever been like a regular nightclub goer in my puff was in the early 2000s in the days of the Electro Clash scene. Mm, um, yeah. And actually, that's when, and it was around then, when you know everyone was discover- rediscovering the synth-pop of the early 80s, it was around then that I started picking up YMO and Sakamoto records, which were the only records of these that you could find in London. Um, but the whole rest of it would actually fit pretty well. Into, you know, loads of this shit would, would sound well in, like, on like too many DJs or what have you. Um, it would actually fit really well into that. It's just that no one at that point knew anything about it. But I think that's, I think that's broadly true. I think that's broadly true that that's why that stuff in the 90s got so big, why people like, you know, the Boredoms, uh, like Boris or what have you, became kind of like semi-famous in Britain and America in the 90s. I think that's why. Just going back to Akiko Yano, I just sort of wondered if you might want to say something on her, just because you mentioned her in, in your article, particularly her completely extraordinary 1981 album uh, to Dima, um, <laughs> uh, which unfortunately isn't available on on the streaming services I don't think at the moment and so I've made like a playlist to go along with this episode and it's not on there and it sort of feels oh. like it almost feels like the playlist shouldn't exist without yeah, it because I mean, it's, so, it's so I good. I get anything out of this it's like you know kids go and find yourself a copy of to Dima by Yana <laughs> my god yeah um yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to say about it other than that it's just extraordinary. I mean, there's a whole, there's like about five albums of hers at that point that are great. And the one after it, um, which is with lots of the boys from Japan, is also great. 
Is that the one where she's with a water buffalo? Yes. Uh, on the cover. Yeah. It's yeah. an incredible cover. It's, yeah. It's so I mean, good. all the covers for these are amazing. I mean, the, the cover to Tadaima with this kind of like sort of manga character, because Tadaima, I suppose you could roughly translate as like, honey, I'm home. Um, so just this kind of character coming in and, and, and waving and there's someone in the foreground listening to records. And, but yeah, there's this whole kind of little world in that, in, in, in that cover. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not a musicologist, and I'm not a music writer. Well, I mean, I moonlight occasionally. You've written a whole book on music, on yeah, but it's about pulp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I, and I, I'd like to do it again, actually, but I, I, I um, you know, it's not it's not my area of, my, of major expertise, so I can't say why it is like it is. But it's so for those who haven't heard it, I suppose, like the reaching for comparisons, which is what people that can't really write about music like me always do. There's bits that remind me of The Dreaming by Kate Bush. Like the one that I think was described by her record company as her Nervous Breakdown album. Although by all accounts, she was completely sound in mind when making it. What was the big single? Well, I say big single because I don't think it did that well. What was the single from that? So that, that does there was Set In Your Lap, of... which is... Just, yeah, like, that's what I'm which, thinking of. And, and they, it also uses, like a lot of these Japanese records, it uses Fairlights all over the place. So these yeah. kind of very, very early, very, very expensive samplers um, that I think were, were manufactured and designed in Japan, so much easier to get hold of there. Um, so you have this kind of, you know, drums falling down the stairs sound, these sort of sample drums falling down the stairs, and then um, almost sort of half-improvised sounding kind of piano-led songs, which take all sorts of sort of bizarre twists and turns. And it's kind of shares has has that, but then combines with that that kind of sound that YMO and Hisono and Sakamoto had in the early eighties of this kind of techno pop sheen and this kind of sense of like enormous optimism running through it as well. I mean, that's one of the things that really you know makes a lot of this music so much fun to listen to is like it sounds so optimistic and so sort of sunny and forward looking. In a moment in which you know, <laughs> that sort of feeling is, is hard in to Britain by. in twenty twenty three, it's very yeah. hard to come by, um, and not in that kind of like way of you know. Obviously, like all um, people my age, I can't abide auto tune, but you know, like a lot of there's a lot of music at the moment where like it has a kind of like we're all having fun at the party, and I'm like, no, you're not. I don't fucking believe you. You're not having fun, and it doesn't sound like fun at all. Whereas this music sounds like everyone's having a ball. I mean, it makes me think also of Vaporwave. And there's you know, oh. bits and pieces of that I, I, I sort of enjoy, but it's pastiche in a way that this music isn't. I'm glad you brought up Vaporwave because um, Vaporwave, you know, what Vaporwave does with this stuff, like one of the reasons why this stuff has been rediscovered, I think, is because of Vaporwave. Mm, yeah. And particularly the Vaporwave subgenre of future funk, which is just city pop records sped up, as far as I can tell. Um, lots of which is great, incidentally. Um, like there's um, a few future punk records which are really joyous, but they all do have a sound like everyone's on their meds. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the kind of lots of vaporwave, you know, just sort of takes that stuff and screws and chops it. Uh, as the, you know, when they're on their downers, these twenty year olds that make it, and then lots of the future stuff, future funk stuff, just sounds like the same thing when they're on their uppers. And again, you know, they're they can't really make those records themselves because they don't have it 
in them, you know, it said, so it becomes a kind of, I mean, I, I'm kind of interested in what they do with those records though, and what they do with the Orientalism as well. Like, I really, really like Johnny Pitts's work on Japan because he, you know, he's a writer and photographer who grew up in Sheffield and he, through various kind of bizarre family connections, ended up living in Japan at the height of the bubble, like, and going from Sheffield in the late 80s to Tokyo, which will have been the nearest thing to space travel that you could ever have, <laughs> I think, in the 20th century. Um, well, uh, you know, and, 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 and that's very much the direction you want to be traveling in, right? Rather than the, the reverse, I would have thought. Exactly. And I think that that, and, and, you know, it's obviously haunted him his entire life. And so he's, he's written a lot about sort of, sort of remembering and sort of memorializing that kind of image of the Japanese boom seen from seen from the West, from the kind of Rust Belt West. And I commissioned him to write about Vaporwave in Tribune when I was still working at Tribune. Um, and there's a particular record called Birth of a New Day, um, which is, you know, it has a load of kanji on the cover and a kind of Neo-Tokyo-style image, and there's some, like, Japanese railway station announcements in it and so forth. Uh, and it's a really, really beautiful record, like one of my favourite records of the last 10 years. I think it's brilliant. But it's it's mournful, you know, and it is this kind mm. of like, you know, I suppose it's the kind of the people much younger than us. It's their equivalent of like the thing that, I suppose people who are a little bit older than us have with the Radiophonic Workshop or Synthpop of like, you know, remember the wonderful future. And I think it's these kids that have sort of grown up on the future will look a bit like Tokyo in the 80s, realising that it doesn't. And it's that, and it doesn't, I mean, I mean, it does in Tokyo, um, but you know that that, that and, and and I think within that there's also a thing which Johnny also brought out. I thought quite well um, that it is also based on like that music in the early eighties, reapportioning the idea of the future to East Asia, um, and while being very aware that it's not happening here. And I think if there's a kind of element of like current contemporary youth culture that I find interesting, it's exactly that. And you can kind of see it in less retro ways through like the cult of K-pop, some of which I enjoy, some of which I find unlistenable. But, um, you know, that, 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 both that kind of vaporwave cult of Japan and the kind of, the, 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 and the kind of K-pop cult of South Korea, that they both have this acknowledgement of the patent fact, I think, that, you know, North America and Europe are culturally and politically moribund. They're not interesting places to to be. They're not, and they haven't really been. Like you know, we can talk about a few kind of things that we like, but you know, by and large, they've not been. You know, I think the kind of the kind of Mark Fisher analysis of the sort of stagnation that happened is just basically true, and you know, we'll all find some things that we like within that. But I think it's just it's, it's a statement of fact. Whereas, and I think you know, one of the reasons for that kind of right. Well, let's go and listen to things from. Korea and let's you know obsess over like you know Japanese culture or what have you or Chinese sci-fi is they're just better they're just much more exciting and imaginative and there is that sense that you know there is something still kind of happening there which in the kind of very depressed culture of North America and and and, and, and Europe isn't anymore and I think that's also part behind the rediscovery that's happening Although it's funny that not of, it's not really about contemporary Japanese music, 
which actually itself revives a lot of this stuff. Like I went when I was there to Tower Records because, of course, they still love CDs. <laughs> still exist. They still exist. Yeah. They love CDs, yeah. which I, 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 which warms the cockles of my heart because I still believe CDs are the best format ever invented. Um, and I think I'm almost alone in this, but in Japan, not in Japan. Um, I hope Jeremy Gilbert's listening to this. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, that, 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 they, um, you know, that there's loads of like city pop revival records on sale in Tower Records, some of which are like repackagings of old, like Tatsuro Yamashita records. And some are people doing that, trying to make Tatsuro Yamashita records in the present day. So, you know, it's an object of nostalgia within Japan itself. And I imagine people there are slightly kind of puzzled and amused by the way that it's become a nostalgia here as well. Going back to the politics. So in what you've written on the topic, you don't especially focus on the political commitments of these musicians to to the extent that they had them. But you do note that many of them had been involved in or or had some kind of relationship, at least, with the Japanese left, which was a, a major force in the 1960s including Sakamoto, the most well-known of of any of those musicians who in the 2000s joined this short-lived anti-capitalist party led by the Marxist theorist Kojin Karatani, who had had been a participant in the massive 1960 protests against the US-Japan Security Treaty that allowed the US to maintain military bases on Japanese soil. And you mentioned that on Sakamoto's first solo album, the track, The End of Asia, uh, morphs into the tune of The East is Red, this Maoist mass song closely associated with the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Though clearly Sakamoto is not near to being a Maoist or anything like it. And, you know, as you've described, much of his work and, and that of YMO and, and, and uh, their collaborators involved that kind of adoption of quite disparate but stereotypically East Asian motifs, which might include some Maoist kitsch uh, yeah. as well, I suppose. And, and, and why I know um, when they on tour in the early 80s will dress up in Maoist boiler suits, it, it's very much part of their, of, of their um, how to put it, of their thing. I mean, it seems in some ways that this stuff, as, as well as the earlier folk rock of people like Happy End, was, was almost a repudiation of, of the very explicitly political folk scene that existed in the, in the 60s and yeah. was associated with, with the left. And the music that people like YMO were making was you know, very much at odds with it. It's, it's highly processed music. It, it's um, at odds with any ideas of cultural or musical authenticity. And that 60s folk music, at least it's my sort of understanding from, from the little I've read about it, very much seemed to position Japan as a sort of colonized nation, which was the victim of US imperialism. And and this is around the same time when there's very much this notion of of Japan as a sort of homogenous country, partly as a sort of repudiation of of Japan's imperial history and and the fact that it had been the leading nation of the greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, this very self-serving term for what was the empire during the the 30s and, and World War II. But you talk about how groups like YMO and, and, and people around them started to sort of reintegrate the memory of, of the war and, and Japan's imperial heritage. Yeah. Could you say a bit about your sense of, of the politics of these groups and to what extent you know, it makes sense to describe a group like YMO as having a, a politics at all? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, that's, that, that kind of distinction with the, with the folk music is quite interesting. Um, and and. We're dealing a lot of the time with the same people, and so you know the the and the group Happy End, who are one of the kind of biggest of those groups. You know, you have Harumi Harum Hosono, and Hosono. If you, if this kind of like sort of anti-imperial, but also sort of self-satirizing kind of you know 
sort of Battle of East and West kind of theme themes all come in via Hosono mainly. Like Hosono, I think, is the kind of the kind of satirist of the of 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 that time. And his his solo albums, um, like Hosono House and particularly Paraiso, they have this um you know that, that it's not just that they kind of parody Western exotica. So on one level, they kind of take things like Les Baxter and Martin Denny, these kind of 1950s American kind of kitsch versions of the music of Hawaii or Java or what have you, and they parody them. But they also, there's always a lot of Okinawan music in them. And the role of Okinawa is really interesting in all of this because Okinawa was for a lot of that period still occupied by the US. Um, it still to this day, you know, holds some of the world's biggest US bases, which are loathed within Okinawa. Yes. Um, but are basically impossible to remove. Um, you know, Obama promised to, to do so and didn't, um, like many things. Um, but Okinawa within Japan itself is also a semi-colony. You know, it wasn't part of a Japanese state. I mean, they speak, you know, the, 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 the native language that was, was similar to Japanese, but it's, you know, it never been part of a Japanese state until it was annexed from, from China in the, in the 19th century. So, you know, it, it, it's sort of the most colonized part of Japan and it was literally still colonized by the US at that point, but it was also a place that was fairly kind of colonized by Japan in the first instance. And, you know, the, the, the music of Okinawa is, appears in loads and loads of this stuff because of the fact that it, I think it sounded exotic also to Japanese ears, you know, c- compared to like sort of Japanese pop music styles like Enka, which are, which obviously sound exotic to Western ears. Mm-hmm. Um, they sounded exotic also to, 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 to Japanese in Tokyo or Osaka or Kyoto or what have you. Um, so there's that, but there's also, you know, the reason why all of this, you know, all of this music that's from places that Japan annexed and, and just before or during World War II is not at all accidental. You know, the reason why there's so much Indonesian music in there, um, there's so many references to, you know, to kind of Malay culture, references to Hawaii, you know, obvious Pearl Harbor-related reasons. You know, that that the, that's all, I think, a kind of... Uh, when you you know when you stick a lot of Hasona records through Google Translate, you know that's what they're about. They're they're very very explicitly about Japanese imperialism. And one of the things one of the why Motrax where this comes out very strongly is a track called Soul Music on Technodelic. And Technodelic is, is I mean it's a fascinating record on so many levels. Um, where it's got a Maoist cover um, and so on. But the, the, the track Soul Music. Um, such a good track. It's, it's such a it's, good track. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. But, <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, at one point, stuck the lyrics through 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 translate, being a, being ignorant as I am, and they're basically about a sort of imagined Japanese person, you know, going on holiday to to Seoul and going on holiday to Korea, and you know, on the one hand, sort of the lyrics that are in English in that song being about, you know, I wasn't allowed to take a picture. Um, because at that point in the early 80s, South Korea was living under an extremely severe military dictatorship. Um, but the, the Japanese lyrics are all things like, um, people over 40 still still speak Japanese. You know? yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. these lyrics that are kind of drawing attention to like, yes, this is what, you know, in living memory, these places were Japanese colonies that were treated with 
you know much the same violence as as as, as colonies were treated and you know and and and, and british or in uh, you know french or belgian colonies um so that yeah and it, but it does mainly come in through hosono i think that's his his specific interest is kind of bringing in sort of other elements of of of, of asian culture and sort of treat sort of very very kind of um on a very very fine balance um satirically kind of treating their relation to to japan and you then get within that a lot of um reference to you know the very very tortured relationship between the us and japan and i think one of the probably the ways to explain what i think kind of happens post-war i mean it's, it's a different even to germany in a way in that the, the the occupation by the us and it's solely the us rather than the us and the soviet union lasts a lot longer but the you know, in exchange for loyalty in the Cold War, the Japanese economy gets to get away with shit that, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, particularly when the Washington Consensus is instituted in the seventies, can't get away with. You know, a, a, a deeply statist development, develop, developmentalist economy with a huge amount of yeah. economic planning. Um, and, and this is true of the other so-called Asian tigers, right? Sim- similar dynamic: South Korea, Taiwan. It's all the frontline Cold War states. Exactly, and and you know, and they they all managed to do very well. well. I mean, apart from you know the various massacres of striking workers, but they all managed to do pretty well out of the Cold War in the same way that West Germany or Italy or France or Britain did very well out of the Cold War. Um, whereas you know Chile or Vietnam or what have you did appallingly out of it. Um, but through basically going like, yes, yes, we're on your side. And now we're going to crush your auto industry, <laughs> you know, just like completely running. And, and you can link that very much to China in the present day. I think these kind of, um, as I, I actually, your, the, um, the, the, the correspondent you had on quite recently talking about China, I think made this point that it's, you know, that, that this kind of thing that we think of as this completely unprecedented thing that is it or isn't it socialist? Well, no, it's a, it's another developmentalist authoritarian state. Which has significant economic planning and is basically capitalist, which is you know what most of the most successful economies in Asia have been doing since the, since the fifties, and that kind of torture relationship to the U.S. of like you know both friend and enemy is brought out a lot in YMO records, particularly in um, the kind of infinity multiplies or however you pronounce it, the 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 one that's got an infinity sign and then it's called multiplies with the kind of the terror yes, it's been very unclear to me how to name that record if I, yeah, I had to. I'm going with Infinity Enterprise. Um, but that that album has all of these kind of comedy sketches, of which about half are in Japanese and about half are in English. And the ones in English kind of have YMO sat down at some American chat show who just proceeds to reel off a load of racist abuse at them at length. Um, and they kind of sit there politely kind of giggling and pretending not to understand. And this is, you know, this is really uh, quite, quite difficult stuff, you know. That the, and and they're getting away with doing it while being pop stars, which is quite extraordinary. And then they get invited on Soul Train, you know. It's really, um, it, it's the balance that they that that, that that you know they don't look like a political group, you know, like the Dead Kennedys or someone, but they bring out a lot of very very uncomfortable political stuff in their work. 
It's funny that thing with the sketches, because obviously YMO are frequently referred to as being a, a big inspiration on a lot of early hip hop, particularly Africa Bambata. But uh, they were also doing sketches, which seemed sort of identifiably similar to, you know, things that you might hear on like a De La Soul record. And, yeah, and so on. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that kind of influence on hip hop, I think, is really worth talking about. Because I suppose one of the things that I, I really find interesting about that period is the complete lack of angst about cultural appropriation. And that's across the board. You know, it's people in hip hop who are swiping from Visage and YMO and Kraftwerk at the same time that they're swiping from Sheik and James Brown. It's YMO nicking from Indonesia at the same time as they're nicking from Philadelphia. You know, it's um, it's such a period of like, we don't really give a shit where things come from. We're going to, you know, like something like Remaining Light by Talking Heads is probably the kind of the most kind of intense version of that and probably in some ways the most problematic with its kind of, you know, wholesale swiping of Afrobeat. But there's, you know, Riot in Lagos by Sakamoto, similarly with its, you know, very, very obvious Falakuti influence. They don't give a shit about who any of this belongs to. And, you know, so much of the most interesting music of the 20th century comes from that. Like, you know, the kind of free jazz of the early 70s, things like Alice Coltrane and Pharaoh Sanders, with this completely ridiculous decontextualized version of India that anyone in India would think was absurd, make wonderful and beautiful things out of that. And there's a similar thing going on at that point of like, you know, really, really extraordinary music is made out of this extremely unprincipled, inauthentic approach to the music of the world. You know, the sort of stuff that later got called kind of world music, which tended to be very, very naff. You know, Bill Laswell works of Yusuf Nador or what have you. Um, uh, lots of, you know, late 80s, early 90s Sakamoto records kind of fit in that category for me. It's being done with so much more style like 10 years before that in Tokyo. And I suppose another element of the kind of angst that you don't, you know, one of the things that makes this music very liberating I think, to listen to now, is that lack of angst about cultural appropriation and authenticity. And it's, you know, not just authenticity of, like, you know, being synthetic, but also authenticity of, like, you're in Japan, you make Japanese music. No, you know, I mean, it's rooted in Japan, but the influences of it are nine-tenths from Nigeria, from the USA, from Britain, from Indonesia, from Hawaii, you know, and and, and I, I... I miss that. It's interesting with someone like Sakamoto, I think, because I remember reading him him somewhere saying, I was born in Japan, but I don't feel Japanese. And, oh, the, and oh. there's a very sort of obvious commitment to a kind of world citizen sort of identity. And in fact, that's right. even a title of, of, of a song he did with Sylvian, uh, yeah. David, David Sylvian. And, you know, thinking about his sort of political concerns, the environment was very important to Sakamoto. Um, he was concerned about the Fukushima uh, disaster later in his life. And, you know, you can imagine some people might sort of, you know, be a bit sniffy about that, sneer at it as a kind of kind of liberal politics. But there is, you know, something also quite exciting about some of that stuff. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to the track Riot in Lagos, mm. which is a you know, perfect example of, you know, gleefully and unapologetically uh, appropriating music from all over the place, particularly sort of uh, Falakuti and Afrobeat and that sort of thing. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, it was engineered by Dennis Bovril, the legendary black British reggae and, and dub producer. And in the article that appeared on the, on the website of the Jenks Foundation, you write about why uh, you think although 
that track and, and so much of this music could be seen as, as postmodern with this sort of syncretic scrambling of, of genres and eras, um, you in the end reject the idea of it being straightforwardly postmodern. Can you explain why and, and why you think of artists such as Sakamoto as being fundamentally modernist in, in inclination? So that's really to do with um, an argument with, with the late Charles Jenks, given where it was published. So Charles Jenks was an American architectural historian who's most famous for a book published in 77 or 78 called The Language of Postmodern Architecture. Um, which it doesn't coin the phrase postmodernism, you know, like I think actually Pevsner had used it uh, about 10 years earlier. And I think Lyotard had already started using it in philosophy, but it's really one of the most influential coinings of the term. And one of the things that I think Jenks is doing within that is a version of the cancellation of the future thesis. Um, which later, you know, via Raymond Williams and Bifo comes into the kind of, you know, the Mark Fisher analysis we all know and love of like the destruction of popular modernism and, you know, the kind of, um, and the sort of general sort of um, slow, apparent slowing down of innovation and the lack of belief in the possibility of, of positive progressive change. And that's very much what Jenks is up to. One of his subsequent books published a couple of years later is called Postmodern Classicism. And by that point, the people you're dealing with, like Robert Stern, Leon Creer, um, are neoconservatives. Um, politically, they're neoconservatives. This is Creer who, who tried to rehabilitate uh, Albert Speer and, and beloved of Prince Charles, of course. Well, King, King Charles. Creates the master plan for Poundbury. Um, very, very interesting thinker, incidentally, like no fool. But these people I see straightforwardly as conservatives. And one of the things that Jenks does in... Um, language of postmodern architecture, is claim the death of modernism happens when the Pruitt-Igo housing estate in St. Louis is dynamite, dynamited in 1972. That's, that's the most famous thing Jenks ever said or wrote. And, you know, like, I think generations of, um, of students have come across some version of this thesis in garbled form. Um, and there's even a bit in there, and I, I like a lot of Jenks's work. I think he was very clever and interesting, but there's... Um, one bit in there, which I think is pretty unforgivable, where he films the architecture critic, Paul Gold Goldberger, I think, in a Mac wielding a knife in Robin Hood Gardens and captures in the Alison Smithson, Alison and Peter Smithson's uh, London council estate and captions it, you know, an event that frequently happens in Robin Hood Gardens. It's like, how the fuck would you know? How dare you? Like, absolutely disgraceful. Like, I mean, I, I you know, I, I really think that was appalling. Um, but that, that, you know, that, that, that kind of argument, uh, there's various problems I have with it, which are kind of not really relevant to what we're talking about now, about, you know, how it relates to the actual history of, 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 of things like public housing and their relation to race and class, which I think was way more important than their relation to architectural history. But the Japanese architecture of, of the time and the, and the Japanese bubble moment in general is really, really hard to see as a cancellation of the future moment. In fact, it's a period of the most futuristic culture, I think, of, you know, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, it's comparable to, you know, Italian futurism or the Bauhaus era or, you know, brutalism or what have you in the sheer kind of intensity of its urbanism, its love, unambiguous love for technology and its optimism. 
So there's an element of it where it works, which is that loads of the architects, like Mackie, who designed the Spiral Art Centre, had spent the 60s imagining huge utopian future cities. And some of those people were on the left, um, particularly Arata Isozaki, who died last year, who was on the left, I think, right till the end, who was a, had been a fellow traveller of Japan's large and still large Communist Party. And Kishu Kurokawa, who designed the famous capsule tower in, 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 in Tokyo, who had been a member of the Japanese CP. And these people by the 80s, they're, you know, they're not designing giant collective housing schemes. They're designing department stores. And they are frequently incorporating weird fragments of, 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 of history in them. But they're t- they're, the way that they're decontextualized, I think, is different to something like postmodern classicism, which is based on the idea that, like, I think to put it very, very bluntly, if you put ordinary folk in unfamiliar modern environments, they'll go mad and kill each other. That's just not happening in Japan. It's just not, you know, like it's, you know, the, the, the housing of the eighties and nineties and the present day really in Japan is, is still modernist. It ne- never really had a kind of an anti-modernist reaction in something like housing. Even though a lot of, you know, a lot of housing in big cities is single family housing. They're single family houses that are frequently brutalist and frequently brutalist from the last 20 years. So, um, it doesn't work. And I think the same thing happens with Sakamoto's work and with YMO of like, yes, it's very much based on irony. You know, yes, it's syncretic. Yes, it's kind of, you know, taken from here and there. It's not pure. It's not the kind of Clement Greenberg idea of modernism, which I've never been interested in. Like, I don't, I don't think that's a useful way to understand modernism or art or anything else. Like the idea that you, you know, purify everything to the pure canvas or the kind of, and although some of the results are beautiful, you know, the kind of Miesian idea of architecture where you just purify everything to like the perfect glass box. Like, you know, the idea that that's what modernism is, is, really really reductive i think but i think if you so it's a borderline case um but i do think ultimately one of the divides between any kind of modernism and postmodernism is is the belief in any kind of the future i don't think you can have postmodernism that believes in the future i don't think it's i think it's a category error yeah and and that's going back to what you sort of said earlier. That's part of what makes this music so appealing. Mm-hmm. Right? It feels so distant in in its <laughs> in its optimism. Um, okay, um, I'll just ask one more question, Owen, if you've got time. So a lot of the music we've been talking about, and even stuff like YMO, which 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 was released in the West, is nonetheless seen as a bit of a sort of niche proposition. It's seen oh, as you know mm-hmm. obscure, and, and and that makes sense when a lot of the other records, you know, were, were so hard to find. Um, but, but you know, this was this was mass market music in Japan. YMO were enormous, you know, provoking something akin to Beatlemania, and they very clearly and were, were open about the fact that they you know wanted to to have huge mainstream success in America. But although they had some success and and, and definitely some you know a great deal of influence, they they never sold masses of, of records in America. Even though there's this sort of sliding doors moment in, in in the history where Michael Jackson, prompted by Quincy Jones, actually covers YMO's uh, Behind the Mask, yeah. and it had been yeah. intended that it would appear on Thriller, obviously you know the best-selling record of all time. So you know who knows what would have happened, yeah. and that and that doesn't happen because of a, you know a contractual dispute. And another sort of element of this is that although there's the failure to sort of crack the U.S. market, this was a time when Japanese electronics were incredibly dominant. Um, you know, you've talked about some of the, the utilization of the technology and you know, Roland synthesizers yeah. and all that kind yeah. of stuff by the musicians, but it's also the era of the Walkman and the, and the Ghetto Blaster. 
Uh, and yet there isn't really that cut through. And, and as you mentioned, you know, perhaps the most well-known record involving a Japanese musician would have been Forbidden Colours, uh, David Sylvian's version of, of Sakamoto's theme from the film Merry Christmas, uh, Mr. Lawrence. Why do you think that, that YMO and these other musicians didn't have more mainstream success in the, in the West at this time? I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward, actually, which is that a lot of the time they sung in Japanese. And I think we're now actually in a moment, which is which is great, where music can be really big in the West that's not sung in English. And that's, I think, the case, obviously, with K-pop. It's the case of a lot of Afrobeats yeah. as well. And that's that's a wonderful development. And, I, you know, I, I mean, which I, 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 I think is one of the real, actually, good things that have happened in, in pop culture in the last 10 years. But it's been in the last 10 years. You know, like something not sung in English becoming a big hit is always a bit of a freak up to that point. You know, something like, um, you know, novelty records like Subplan Pomboire, which obviously is brilliant, but you know, it's, it, there wasn't a lot of French punk that got Belgian punk rather that got, that got big. Um, or something like Je t'aime one en plus, where, you know, like that became famous because you didn't actually need to know the words to work out what they were doing or weren't doing. I'm not sure what the, what the view is about what was actually happening when it's being recorded. Um, but that, that, um, so I think in the kind of, you know, the, 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 the golden years of pop music, 60s, 70s, 80s, yeah, you just didn't have big records in the US and UK that were sung in other languages. And now people have got over themselves and can listen to records that are like the, like the wonderful Mariah album, which is, you know, partly I think lots of it is mainly sung in Armenian. Armenian, yeah. <laughs> which you know, um, and there's actually loads of loads of the um, sort of this kind of these techno pop records, like Mahara Koshi's early eighties early eighties albums are sung in French. So actually, Japanese artists at the time were quite happy to like sing in Armenian or French or English. But yeah, the people weren't ready for it at that point to really take music seriously that was sung in other languages. And people, you know, people who got big, like Kraftwerk, got big by, you know, making sure that they always did an English album. You know, the famous Kraftwerk albums, they all have an English version. And I think they knew full well they would never have been as successful as they had if they hadn't done that. Um, I think that's it. I think a lot of this stuff... You know, it's it's funny that that used to be a you know a tradition in in Western music. The Beatles used to record German versions of their songs, and, and a few years later, that just seems unimaginable that that people would be doing that and feel that they would need to. Yeah, but I, but I think that that you know that that's that's the really big change now, and I think you can also link that to a lot of other kind of musics that were really ignored, apart from a kind of fringe of hipsters in, in North America and Western Europe at the time, like a lot of um, a lot of West African music that's you know beyond just velocity that's been rediscovered in the last 10 15 years and um, music from brazil which i know you're a big fan of you know like a lot well it was it, yeah i i remember having sort of a very similar experience with brazilian music as i did with this music yeah. of kind of just suddenly discovering that oh there's this incredible treasure trove yeah, of music absolutely. That, that at the time not, not that many people knew about and it's just yeah. record after record it's just yeah. this, and, and, and i think it's, it's <laughs> similar also with, with with nigeria and and, and ghana and, and you know that the, there's you know i mean there's an amazing Lots of music from like Somalia from the seventies and eighties that's been rediscovered in the last, you know, by, by Western record labels in the last ten years, which is astonishing. But yeah, I think that they're they're all kind of part of that. Again, one of the few things in pop culture that I think are unambiguously good of the last decade or two of just the total decentering of 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 
the idea that everything happens in Britain and the US and maybe also Jamaica and maybe sometimes in West Germany. And that's just been thrown completely open, which is great. Do you think that's also indicative of a certain exhaustion of the pop music tradition in places like North America and Britain or, and Germany, or or would you not want to go that far? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, but that's because I'm middle aged, you know. Like, um, <laughs> I always, whenever I've kind of you know have these conversations with you, I I do always kind of imagine someone twenty five just rolling their <laughs> eyes every time I complain about all this or whatever. Um, and you know, and, and like, there's that wonderful book that came out on repeater, Neon Screams, a couple of years ago, which puts this completely kind of like, you know, unambiguous case for auto tune as the real motor of musical innovation. And I listened to all the records that he talks about, and I was like, he's right. These are really futuristic, really innovative, and I hate them. <laughs> I find them totally unlistenable. Which is as which is right and as it should be, right? Because I'm 42. Like you're not supposed to like the music the kids like when you're 42. Um, so I'm not going to make any really grand claims, but for the fact that it's telling to me that a lot of the music that that that, that book talks about is you know is from the Caribbean rather than from some of it is from New York and from London, but um, a lot of the kind of subgenres that um have sort of grown out of hip-hop and, and, and grown out of grime still have some liveliness in them i suppose but they're not they're not for me i'm far too old um in general i think it's fair to say that yes there are interesting things going on but you know it, 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 there's a predictability in a lot of this and, and and again i think the popularity of something like afrobeats and k-pop with the kids comes out of the fact that it's not predictable you don't know what's going to happen next You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.